We return to our study, Fundamentals of the Faith, and last time we left off on page 27 in our workbook on the study of the attributes of God. So before we begin there, let's review our verses thus far. Okay, chapter 1, Introduction to the Bible, 2 Timothy 3.16. Go ahead, Mark. Anyway, let me try. Let me try. Sure. In, in <laughs> and if you got, and even if you got it wrong, I wouldn't even That's know. Right. Right. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> the old scripture is inspired by God for profitable for teaching, uh, proving, correcting, and uh, training in righteousness. So that men of God will be equipped to do good work. Very good. You even did did it good in English. Yeah. Very good. Very important chapter that we spent time on because it is a reminder that the Bible is inspired by God. It is God breathed. Good. Chapter two. How to know the Bible, Second Timothy two fifteen. It's okay, King James works. Go, go, Christy. Very good, Christy. Very Second good. Timothy 2.15. Very good. Study the Bible is the mark of what? A good workman. Is a good workman who studies the Bible. Because we don't want to be somebody who does his best to be sure he would meet with God's approval rather than with shame. That's what we want. And then chapter 3. Here's where we are. Chapter 3, 1 Chronicles 29, 11. For you, O Lord, are the greatness and power and glory and victory and majesty. Indeed, all the heaven and the earth is yours. For yours is the dominion, O Lord. And you exalt yourself as head over all. This is a very succinct verse of the characteristics and attributes of God. If there's one verse in the Bible that you would like to put to your thoughts, is this one about who God is. This First Chronicles 29, 11. And why is that in review from last time? Because we oftentimes will move to our, a mental image of who the Lord is instead of what the Bible describes Him to be. We have a tendency to move some way or another. Oftentimes, is not what the Bible teaches. So we need to be taught correctly, always reminding ourselves of that. And you know, one of the things we need to remember is that the various perfections and characteristics of God are not components or parts of God. Each one describes His total being. He's not some justice, some love, some righteousness, some mercy, some love. He's not. God in His total being is love. God in His total being is just. Some, his total being is omnipotence. So we don't want to look at Him as one quality, as a part. That's His being. But now there may be times when He exhibits a characteristic more than another. But remember, it's not a part of Him. And I'll have a handout for you here in a little bit. 
And one of the things that's going to be in the handout is that God is a simple being, meaning he has no parts. We have parts, head, heart, feet, hands, veins, arms, legs, stomach, and so on. He has no parts. He is a complete, infinite being. The Bible would call him not only simple but incomprehensible. So as we look at these things, we want to make sure that we remind ourselves that God is more than the sum total of his perfections. He's more than that. Any of you come in here with thinking that God had parts in his characteristics as you think of who God is, as you think of how you would describe him in your own mind? That's very common. That's why we want to constantly remind ourselves that we will move toward an image of who we think God is. We always want to remind ourselves of who he really is, and that's what the Bible teaches. Also, one other note is that God has no bounds and he has no limits. He is in no way limited to the universe in which he's created, and he's not limited to time. He's a creator of time. He's outside of time. He created the universe. He's outside of the universe. The universe and time has no bearing on him because he has no bounds. But it doesn't mean that he's somehow spread out over the universe. That he's one part here, one part there. The Bible says in Jeremiah 23, Where can a man hide that I shall not seem? That's God speaking. Do I not fill the heavens and the earth? So we constantly want to remind ourselves of these things before we jump into these final attributes of God. And what you and I think about the Lord in who He truly is, is then it will show in our behavior how we think, what we do, how we act. Okay? So last time we looked at the first attribute listed in in the workbook, His holiness. How would you describe that from last week? If I went around the room and I asked each one of you individually and you didn't hear what the previous answer was before somebody answered it, and your ears were plugged up for what somebody said and it came your turn, and they said, okay, how would you describe God's holiness? What would you say? Pure infinite goodness. That's good. Pure Perfect. White as snow. Say that again. White as snow. White as snow. Unstained. Magnificent. Beautiful. Great beauty. Mm -hmm. His otherness. Pardon me? His otherness. What do you mean, Michael? He's just different from anything that is created because he is not created. And so he's completely other than a creature. That's good. That's right. So as you think of his holiness, think of him as you guys just described him. And more. 
He's a being. He's invisible. He's immense. He's eternal. He's incorruptible. And more. Incomprehensible. And more. We all have a tendency to lower who He is in a sense sometimes to understand who He is and sometimes to bring Him down to where we can understand Him or to where we want Him to be. So we want to elevate that from what the Bible teaches about Him and do the best we can to go along in understanding those truths. Okay, now page 27 in your book. We'll begin there with the attribute of righteousness and justice. John Calvin said this, Whenever you hear the glory of God mentioned, think of His justice. Unquote. What does the world think of when they think of God? What's His overwhelmingly characteristic that they talk about of God. Love. Love. Overwhelmingly. God wouldn't do that. God's a God of love. God's a God of love. He wouldn't send people to hell. Okay? John Calvin. Whenever you hear the glory of God mentioned, think of His justice. Oftentimes, that would be lower on the list of characteristics that would describe the Lord. In your notes, it says here, righteousness and justice are derived from the same root word in the original language of the New Testament. The meaning of that is being right or just. Righteousness designates the perfect agreement between God's nature and His acts. Righteousness, right standing, or righteousness. Justice is fairness. He's perfect and right and just in all His dealings with humanity. He's always right. He's never wrong. We may think that there are unjust injustices in the world, and there are. Nobody gets away with anything. Either the Lord Jesus will pay for those injustices caused by us on the cross, or the individuals will pay for them. And God sees everything and records everything, and He's always right. Justice is the way in which God legislates His righteousness. There is no action that God takes in relation to man that violates any code of morality or justice. He's always right. And He handles and performs everything as He legislates His righteousness. Your notes, it says there is no law above God but there is a law in God. 
Put in another way, God is the only one who has the ability to always be right. The only one. Have you ever said, well, that's not fair. Or even with salvation, somebody who's saved, and then you hear about somebody being elect to be saved. And then you hear about salvation and that someone is not elect. You ever been in a conversation where you go, well, that's not fair. We just established that everything God does is always right. Psalm 119, 137 says, God's righteousness is displayed in His upright judgments. When He judges someone, He's right. He's never incorrect when He makes the judgment. How about this? He always has the perfect conclusion to a matter. So, let's fast forward in the biblical timeline. This was from week one for those of you who were here. The great white throne judgment is coming. Revelation 20. All people who are not believers in the Lord Jesus will be there. Who's on the throne? Judging? Lord Jesus. What's He going to do? Open books of each individual life who's lived, is living, or will live, and He will judge that individual according to all of the deeds, thoughts, motives, and acts and judge them perfectly. What's the verdict? You have to pay for sins. The wages of sin is death. So those people go to hell and pay for it. He's always right. So Jesus, the Father and the Spirit, are so patient and waiting for people to come to Christ now so they can turn and be reconciled to God through the Lord Jesus so they don't have to meet Him at the great white throne judgment. It's coming. It's what the Bible says. We just quoted 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is given by God, profitable for doctrine, reproof, for correction, training in righteousness. It's true. According to Psalm 89.14, righteousness and justice are referred to as what? Who has the answer? Foundation of the throne. Good, that's right, Mike. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth go before your face. That's what it says. The foundation of his throne, the bedrock of his throne, or the basis of his throne, or the groundwork of his throne, is what the Bible says about the Lord. He's described as righteous. Jeremiah 23, 6. The Lord God, our righteousness. Righteous. The Bible says the Lord is my rock and there is no unrighteousness 
in him. Psalm 92, 15. How does your standard of what is right and just compare with God's standard? Okay, guys, what do you think? We just looked at the Lord's standard. How does our standard of what is right and just compare with God's standard? Sometimes at the opposite end of the spectrum, which is sad, but true. That's right, Roy. Opposite ends of the spectrum, sad but true. Defined as corrupt, sinful and evil. That's us. That's what the Bible teaches. Romans 3, 9 through 12. So we can't be trusted. For absolute truth, we cannot be trusted. Do you have friends you trust? Of course. How far do we take that? How far do we apply that? Sometimes it can go far. Sometimes it can go too far. The reason I keep bringing this up is so that yours and my thinking turns to the Lord and what Scripture says about justice and righteousness. The Bible says in Micah 7, 5, do not trust in a friend, do not trust in a close companion. Okay, why? We just described there, we're at the other end of the spectrum for righteousness and our reasoning is corrupt. Now, please understand, we have friends and we have family that we talk to that we trust. What are our friends and our family talking to us about in terms of truth? That's the measuring rod. What is their measuring rod of truth? Reason? The Bible says no. Do not trust in that. Another application. Does anybody have that filled in? It would be interesting to know what you put. Personal application, knowing this particular attribute. Anybody want to comment? How can we apply it to everyday life? That's the question. That's right. So putting that into practice today or the rest of the day would be good to go over Rick's notes. 
the application of that. So when we hear stuff, run into stuff, conversations, friends, neighbors, co-workers, there will be things that are unrighteous. May the Lord remind us in our own thoughts that He'll work us through those, to trust Him through those things, knowing He's right and worthy to be trusted when things are hard. Health, finances, job, and so on. Since righteousness is an attribute of God, only God is truly righteous. Because righteousness is only from God, righteousness is always God-centered. Here's the point. Righteousness apart from God is self-righteousness. So righteousness apart from God turns to self. Thomas Watson said this, as long as there is eternity, God has time enough to reckon with His enemies. Unquote. That's pretty good. Okay. Questions? This particular attribute and God's wrath are the least talked about attributes of the Lord oftentimes in the world. Because who wants to talk about judgment and wrath and justice? We don't want justice. What do we want? We want mercy. We want somebody to not give us what we deserve. But God is going to reckon all accounts at the end. Our account as Christians are reckoned through the Lord Jesus. However, the Bible teaches, 2 Corinthians 5, we will all meet Jesus at the judgment seat of Christ where we give an account of our stewardship as a Christian. Resources, health, time, witnessing, helping, serving, loving, will all give an account as a manager of what the Lord has given us. We'll be judged for in a sense of condemnation. But we will meet him. That's pretty a good way to think in a healthy way, isn't it? All right, let's keep going. Sovereignty. Sovereignty. This doctrine is so difficult to understand. J.C. Ryle said this, quote, of all the doctrines of the Bible, none is so offensive to human nature as the doctrine of God's sovereignty. Unquote. Charles Spurgeon said this, quote, No doctrine in the whole Word of God has more excited the hatred of mankind than the truth of the absolute sovereignty of God. Unquote. Why is that? Why would they make statements like that? Well, I've got a couple reasons for you that may help. Well, it runs up against our pride. 
because we don't want to be told what to do and that's somebody ruling over us telling us what to do. And another one could be the answer to the question, is God in control of everything? Then we run up against the problem of evil if we say He does. You know, where did evil come from? Or if we don't say He controls everything, then we have a God who lacks the power over something. One way or another, we're going to run into something like that. But we know that the Bible teaches over and over again that the Lord is sovereign over everyone, everywhere, at all times. So, what's the definition of sovereignty? Pure and simple, God's absolute rule. That's basically the definition. In your notes, it says the word sovereign means chief or highest supreme in power, superior in position to others. God is the chief being in the universe. He is supreme. He is someone else, in a sense. Could be possibly the best verse on sovereignty in the Bible. It's one of my favorites, if not the favorite, is Isaiah 46, 9 through 11. It's in your notes. I am God and there's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done. Saying, my counsel will stand. I will do all my good pleasure. I have spoken it. I will bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will do it. A lot of personal pronouns in there. Did you notice there weren't any in there about us? Isaiah 45, 23. What's the answer to that one? In terms of sovereignty, what does that verse tell us for those of you who filled in your notes? By myself I have, I have, I have sworn. Yes, and? Isaiah 45, 23. That's right, Mike. That's right, Mike. Well said. Nobody's going to escape. As you look at me and I look at you, every one of us will bow before the Lord because the Bible teaches it. Other verses that are very helpful. The Bible says in Psalm twenty two twenty eight. The kingdom is the Lord's and He rules over the nations. Psalm 103, 19. The Lord is sovereign over all things. That's pretty clear. Daniel 4, 17 and 25. The Most High rules in the kingdom of men and He gives to whomever He chooses. Whatever you and I have, 
God specifically gave it to you and me. He rules over everybody. Men of old used to call it the distribution of providence. God has all these resources and he distributes them as he sees best for his purposes and glory. And what did we say about righteousness and judgment? He's always right. So when he distributes it, he's always right. Somebody may have more. Somebody may have less. There's always somebody who has more and there's always somebody who has less. That's how he decided to distribute it in his sovereignty. He gives to whomever he chooses, whatever he does. So as you think about what you own, what you have, friendships, home, car, clothes, food, um, knowledge of Scripture, um, anything that was given to you from the Lord. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 4, do you not know that what you have been given has been given to you? Don't you know that? It's like Paul said, don't you know that? 1 Corinthians 4, 7. So, in God's sovereignty, He's over all, but He's also sovereign over us individually, as I just talked about. In Proverbs 16.33, the lots are cast into the lap. It's every decision is from the Lord. Every decision. Proverbs 16.9, man plans his way. What does God do? Directs his steps. We may plan where we're going to go. God directs our steps. I'm really glad. Some people don't like that. They don't want to be told how their steps are to be directed. That's an issue of pride. And we're all there, one time or another, if not now. In your notes, it says the idea of sovereignty is an encouraging one, for it assures the Christian that nothing is out of God's control and that his plans cannot be thwarted. And then they quote Romans 8.28. For the believer, there's great comfort in those words. God causes all things to work together for good. Because there is nothing that occurs in all the universe that God does not command or permit to happen. Everything that goes on, God has given permission to. Everything. You think that's true? Look at our world. Look what's happening in the Middle East. Look at our economy in America. Look at our open borders at the South. Look at inflation. God has given permission for all of it. Why? Because of His decree from a long time past. And here's the decree. For His glory 
All things point to him. All things, including yours and my life. Nothing's out of control. Nothing that happens he doesn't know about or control. Looks out of control. Is chaotic sometimes. Oftentimes. It seems most of the time. It's not. Everything is exactly where God wants it to be. We live under the providence and sovereignty of God and His rule in our lives. Yet we are not limited by the freedom to make choices. So don't go to one side and say, oh, God's sovereign, He's going to do whatever He wants. It doesn't matter. No. And don't be over here, everything's out of control. What am I going to do? I'm going to fret. No. The Bible teaches we take all of these things in and trust Him through it when we don't know where it's going. And you know what's hardest? At least from my perspective, I'm saying I'm right. I'm just saying this is my perspective. What's hardest is when things happen to our individual families through something very difficult, through health, death, something taken when it happens to us personally. That's when it's most difficult. And that's when we want to ask the Lord to help us to rise through our thinking, okay, you have given permission to this. And you're always what? Right. right? You know what? That's where we give Him the most glory is when we trust Him through the unknowns. That's what He wants. The Bible says in Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifices of the Lord are a broken and contrite spirit. A broken spirit that He will not resent. That's what He wants. And to trust Him through it as the Good Shepherd. It's just hard. Sometimes, a lot of times. What was, what was that reference? Psalm 51, verse 17. Application. I think I've given you some thoughts on application. What did you put down in your notes? Okay, how do I apply all this? We, we saw he's right and just. And now we're hearing he's sovereign. Okay, what do we do with that? Anybody want to comment? Let him lead. Pardon me? Let him lead. Let him lead. That's right. That's good. Let him lead us to where? He leads me in the path of what? For what? His namesake. Uh, This is a holy divine motive here. God will lead us for His name's sake. It's not for us. It's for His glory and His name. Psalm 23. Very good. Listen to guy today, Jack Hughes. Most of you know Dr. Jack. He was here for a while, a few years back. Mm-hmm. So he was talking about sovereignty, and he said we understand the or we used to hear the word uh, 
not sovereignty, but uh, it's a what kind of thing is it? It's a it's a righteous thing, but it's a what's the word that I want to use? Is it providence? Yeah, it's it was providential. Okay. And he said, and a lot of people recognize that if it was providential, it was good. But he said, if they say it's a bad providential, he said, how can a righteous God come up with something that is bad and providential? You know, so he said, you can't, you can't say it. If it's providential, it's always good. Mm-hmm. That's Just right. Like you were saying earlier, if it's family, it's hard sometimes to, with our finite minds, and sometimes tiny finite minds like mine, it's hard to figure out where the good is. It might be ten years, but it'll probably it'll happen. But it'll take a while sometimes. And that's very common and normal for us when it's really difficult and hard. I'm not saying it's easy. It's interesting you mention that because the Puritans used to call the providences that were difficult, they called them dark providences. God's dark. Dark providences. You know, yeah. You know, people say, well, you've ever heard people say, you know, that was really good. That's a God thing. Everything's a God thing. <laughs> well, they weren't wrong. They weren't wrong. <laughs> Just repetitive. That's right. But. But when time passes, we may never understand why, but we can look back and see his goodness. And he's always trustworthy. I don't know why I have such a hard time resting with that when those things come. Well said, Christy, and that's absolutely true. Sometimes we don't know the reasons why they happen. But God does, and he's always right. That's right. And we may never know. May never know. That's right. But you're right about time. Time reveals many things. What we believe, what others believe, how God works, time, providence, events, as God orchestrates it, can look back and see it, think, okay, now I understand. Or, I still don't understand, Lord, but you're good and right. Yeah. So, when, at what point does the saying of that what people meant for evil, God meant for good, mm-hmm. when does that, like, how does that work into it? Uh, over time, yeah, Genesis fifty twenty. you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Mm-hmm. Joseph looked back and saw what his brothers did to him, what Potiphar's wife accused him of, that the jailer left him in jail for a long time. And then over the course of time, as he trusted the Lord through those difficulties, and his brothers came and they reconciled and he took care of them because of the famine in the land, he said to his brothers what you just quoted. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. How do they come in? And over time, they overlap. You just see it as 
as the plans are laid out and time gives us a perspective that we may not be able to see at the time it's happening. Because he and his genius, he does. I don't know how to say it. Only believers, that being Christians, those who believe in Christ, who have received the benefits of his grace, are the ones who can truly have a will to obey or disobey the commands of the scriptures. All unbelievers have a will that's bound and all they do is disobey the commands of God. Now, how do those unbelieving, believing factors come into play in God's providential workings? Because He can do whatever He wants to do, however He wants to do it. And we're going to get to it in a second. And He does it effortlessly by His great wisdom and power. So He, work, he works it out. That's Romans 8.28. He causes all things to work together for good. Note, He causes all things to work together for good. In some ways, that's more amazing than a miracle. Parting of the Red Sea, floating axe head, you know, uh, raising Lazarus from the dead that Jesus did. That's a miracle. But think about all the billions of people and contingencies and choices all the decisions, all the acts, all the motives, God is meshing all that together for what's for what? His glory and His purpose. Why do we say that? Because that's what the Bible teaches. We just read Isaiah 46, 9 through 11. Yeah, that's a hard one. That's the real genius of God. That's His genius at work with ease. He even says, is there anything too difficult for me? Jeremiah 32. There's nothing too difficult for him. You guys have seen tapestries, right? You may hang them on the wall or on the floor. And you see a pattern of that tapestry, right? Flip that tapestry around. What do you see? Threads going all different ways. You know, kind of out of control in different directions and Okay, think of it this way. We see the backside of the tapestry. Things are going different directions and out of control and upside down. And, but we flip it around. That's God's perspective. Perfect picture. He knows exactly where it's going. Question is, do we believe that? Because that is the practical side of the Christian life. When everything's haywire. And upside down. What did you say the question was again? I just didn't hear it. I'm not questioning you. I'm just wondering what, when you're asking me to recall something. I don't know what I said. <laughs> Help me out, everybody. I think she was. Uh, Chris, she was asking why do bad things happen and how does that come out to be good? Is that what you're saying, okay. Roy? Because we'd already gone over the tapestries on the back is the mm -hmm. way we see things. Mm -hmm. But when God looks at it, he, we see what God sees when we turn around to the front. 
Yeah. I put this in my notes because I didn't want to forget it. So here's what it says. The sovereignty of God seems to contradict the freedom or actual responsibility of man. But even though it may seem to do so, sovereignty is clearly taught in the scriptures. So it must not be denied because of our inability to reconcile it with the freedom or responsibility of men. So sovereignty must not obliterate free will, and free will must not obliterate sovereignty. It's both. Twin truths, like railroad tracks. They run alongside each other, and they're true. They just don't meet in our mind, but it does in God's. Okay, page 29, eternality. Eternality is basically the lifetime of Almighty God. That's what eternality is. It's the lifetime of God. Since God is eternal, there has never been a time when God did not exist. He had no beginning and will have no end. The Bible says this in Isaiah 44, 6-8. He is the first and the last. And besides Him, there is no God. No Dagon, no Baal, no Molech, no Ashtaroth, and all the different gods made that the Bible speaks of, of the pagans that the Bible records. Did you know Jesus called himself the first and the last? That's a claim to deity. Revelation 1.17 So God is beyond origin. God did not begin. What was it that he said his name was to Moses in the burning bush? Exactly. What does that mean? Good, Mike. Anything to add to that with Mike, Gabe? Which is good. I think, like, trying to remember, I studied it out a few years ago. And when he told Moses, I am what I am, or I am that I am, it was a response to Moses asking him, like, who are you or what are you like? And he he said that, like, I am that I am, because there is nothing in all creation that he can be compared to. So there is nothing to describe who he is. Good. That's good. That's good, Michael and Mike, that's good. Jesus said this in John eight fifty eight. Before Abraham was, I am. A declaration of deity. He's the self-existing one. Always existed. You can see why they killed him. He was declaring himself to be God. He declared himself to be Jehovah. 
he declared himself to be Yahweh. He quoted from Exodus 3, which you guys are talking about. Isaiah 43.13, of course, before time was, he was. You know, God is his own eternity. He is his own. And in some ways, there's no higher mystery than God's eternity. How can that be? How can he always existed? How can he not have a beginning? Our minds just can't. <laughs> it's a God. It, we can't comprehend it. We cannot. Tozier said, go back as far as you can in eternity past. Just go back as far as your mind will take you. Then go farther. And if you can go farther, do it. Before long, your mind will collapse because you can't go back any farther. That's God's eternity. And think about it this way. The Lord Jesus came and came to one location when he was born. He's the eternal one. He's the great I am. It's amazing. Being eternal, God is not bound by time. In your notes, having always existed, he sees the past and the future as clearly as he sees the present. With that perspective, he has a perfect understanding of what is best for our lives. Therefore, we should trust Him with all these areas of our lives. What's the personal application, you think? How can we apply this particular characteristic and attribute of God? It's true. He does. He does have the whole world in his hands and he's always had it. And he didn't need it before he created it. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes 3.11, God has set eternity in our hearts. There's something inside of us, in everybody, that's itching at us. And people will fill it with something. It could be work, money, drugs, sex, alcohol, golf, television, and so on. Looking to fill it with something. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He's the one who satisfies and fills that hunger. So the application also, besides he's got the whole world in his hands, is that God will never cease to exist. And he always has the sustaining providential control over everything, 
always has, is now, always will. We can be assured of that. Let's keep going. Immutability, page 29. Arthur Pink said, God cannot change for the better, for He is perfect. And being perfect, He cannot change for the worse. Immutability. God never changes in who He is and what He has decreed or His purposes. He is unchanging. Uh, He is unchangeable. It doesn't mean that He's inactive. But it does mean He's never inconsistent He's never growing or developing. He's never improving. He's never taking in something with, I didn't know that. He doesn't change. Malachi 3.6 is a classic verse in the Old Testament. I, the Lord, do not change. Hebrews 6.17-18, He's unchangeable in His purposes and His promises because He doesn't lie. Real quick, what are some promises God has given us from the Bible? What are some promises He's given? No more floods. He's not going to flood the earth. Okay, good. He'll never leave nor forsake. That's a promise. He can't lie. He can't curse the land. Pardon me? He can't curse the land. Well, I think I know what you mean. The land is already cursed. But he is not going to flood the land, like Roy said. But the land is cursed because of the fall. That's why we have... Right after that, he ended, like, it's not going to be all thistles and weeds and that you have to eat through... Yeah, that's true. And through hard work, we have to get rid of the weeds. We have to pull the thorns and thistles so that we can eat. Because the land is in a curse. That's why the Bible says that the world is groaning. It's, it's groaning for a new heaven and a new earth because it's actually under a curse. Good point, though. Okay? No flood. Never leave, no forsake. What else? What else did God promise you and me? Oh, he's coming back. Absolutely. Said he's coming back. Just like he came the first time, he's coming a second time. Good. New heaven, new earth. New heaven, new earth. Mm-hmm. New heaven, new earth. Yep. It's coming. Did he promise eternal life? Yes. That's a big one. I give them eternal life. None of them shall perish. None shall snatch them out of my hands. That's a promise. So, he never changes in his promises and oaths. He makes an oath to himself of the things we just said and more. The Bible contains numerous promises for those who belong to him. And we just gave some. 
the value of immutability of that doctrine is enormous. It always has to do with the person who makes the promise. So as we read the Bible, look for those promises and know that He'll fulfill them. Omniscience, page 30. Simply God knows everything. You know, basically the fact is that God can never be taken by surprise because He knows everything. He knows all things possible and actual. He possesses perfect knowledge and therefore He has no need to learn anything. He doesn't need to be counseled. He doesn't seek information and God doesn't ask questions to find out information. In Job 34, 21, he sees all of man's steps and all of his ways and he knows them anyway. And the classic psalm of God's omniscience, omnipresence, is seen in Psalm 139. It's the classic psalm written by David that he not only knows everything, how about this one? He knows you and he knows me. David says, you are acquainted with all of my ways. Didn't say everybody's ways. He's acquainted with all of my ways. You discern my thoughts from afar. David said. The Bible says that God says, I know the thoughts that come into your mind. He's always known them. He knows them before we think them. He knows what we're going to say before we say it. He knows everything. If God is omniscient, then He knew all of our sins, past, present, and future at the time of our salvation. Yet He still forgave us and received us into His family forever. What does that say about the security of our salvation? It says a lot. Yeah. Romans eleven twenty nine, The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. He's not going to take the gift of salvation, give it, and then take it back. He who the Father gives to me will come to me, and he who comes to me I will surely not cast out. John 6, 37. He knows who's going to come to him. He knows who he died for for their sins. He knows it all. So, Christian, think of it this way. He not only died for you, He knew He would die for you. He knew what sins He would die for. And He wanted to do it. Yes. He knew exactly. Jesus knew 
Jesus is going to betray him before he Judas did? Jesus knew Judas was going to betray him. Remember he said to him at the Last Supper, he says, go do what you need to do. A classic verse for this is Acts 2.23. This Jesus delivered up by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Peter's talking. You, the Jews, crucified and killed. It was predetermined that Jesus was going to die. It was predetermined that Adam and Eve would sin and be cast out of the garden. Whose fault was that? God's? Adam and Eve's? That's right. Adam and Eve. They chose to disobey. Everything is working in a paradox. In a sense of, again, Acts 2.23. Talking about the predetermined foreknowledge of God. Jesus is going to go die. He knew he was going to die. He always knew he was going to die. Predetermined. Nobody's going to thwart it. Remember in the Bible, sometimes Jesus would say, it's not my time. It wasn't time for him to die yet. And then he would say, I must now go to Jerusalem. He knew. He knew. Yet who killed him? The Pharisees and the scribes and the Romans. Peter, you crucified and killed him. Whose fault was that? It was theirs. But it was a predetermined plan by God. That's right. Put that one together. And he wanted to. Why? Because we are love gifts from the Father to the Son. Chosen in Him. Ephesians 1, 3-14. Chosen in Him as a gift. And He came to redeem us. Christianity isn't a thing of do's and don'ts. It's all about worshiping and being thankful through a relationship God moved us into with Him. That's what Christianity is. We just get the privilege of telling other people. By the way, there's a lot of people who don't believe what I just said to you. So here's what I will say to you. See what the Bible says about it. Check me out. I don't mind. I don't mind. But that's what it teaches. So yeah, he knew. Always knew. He even knew you were going to sit in the chairs you're sitting in tonight. He knew what chair, what row, what time you'd sit down. Think, well, that's getting a little bit weird. Well, I either believe that's true or I don't. Is he in control of just some things, the big things, and not the little things? Yeah, he can't be sovereign if he, if he doesn't know those things. That's right, Mike. People who believe that he just controls the big things and lets other things go, that's called deism. Thomas Jefferson believed that, so did Benjamin Franklin. God created, let the world go. They were deists. The Bible teaches he controls and permits everything. 
We have a few more to get through here. Page 31, omnipresence, basically, he's everywhere present in the universe. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, this is the fundamental thing. The most serious thing of all. That we are always in the presence of God. Yeah. Nobody's by themselves. Nobody's hidden from anybody. In a sense of, no one's not there because God is there. Proverbs 15.3, God's eyes are in every place keeping watch on the evil and the good. The eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the whole earth, looking to show His strength on those who value Him. 2 Corinthians 16.9 God is looking. He sees everything. He's everywhere present. And then Psalm 139.7-12 There is no place to go from God's Spirit. What's the application? It's so foolish to think that we can hide from Him. We can't. In the privacy of our own home, by herself, nobody's around, what do we watch on TV? What do we read by ourselves? What do we listen to by ourselves? What are we putting into our minds? God is right there. He knows exactly what we see, what we listen to, what we read. He's always known it, never not known it. He's right there. May the Lord remind us of that as we are by ourselves and we may tend to fall off into a ditch. Omnipotence. God is all-powerful having more than enough strength to do anything. There's the classic Jeremiah verses, Jeremiah 32, 17. All sovereign God who created the heavens and the earth with your outstretched hands and great power, nothing is too difficult for you. Then verse 27, is there anything too difficult for me? No. The Bible says the Lord spoke and it was done. He commanded, it was established, Psalm 33. God didn't have some resources over here that were made in some big bang explosion and then he used those materials and spoke things into existence. He spoke and it was done. He commanded, it was established. So on the day of creation, day one, He spoke in day and night. Day two, he spoke in the firmament or the sky. Day three, he spoke in plants, herbs, trees, grass, the earth, out of nothing. Day four, the sun, the moon, and the stars. He spoke the universe, the sun, the moon, the stars. Day five, he created living creatures, land creatures, sea creatures, flying creatures in all their varieties. 
What did he create on day six? Us. Man in his own image. What did he do on the seventh day? He rested and was refreshed. Not because he was tired. Because he was giving us a pattern of work. He did that from his tremendous wisdom and power. Amazing. They're still finding things at the bottom of the ocean. These weird creatures that they haven't seen before. I can't even think of the name. This was just a couple weeks ago. And it was a bizarre looking thing. What did they attribute that to? Evolution. It's always been there. People couldn't get to it. And as God, as we look at the stars, which by the way, they're beautiful this time of year in autumn. You can see the Big Dipper off to the north in the east and it's turned kind of a little bit upside down. And you can see it. And you see all of those stars. <coughs> There's as much life teeming in a spoonful of water than in the universe that God has created. In His microscopic world that only He created. Amazing. The Bible teaches that God is all-powerful and He can do whatever He wants, when He wants, however He wants, and He's always right. Yeah. So we can rest in Him when things don't go well. He's got the power to lead us through by His Spirit and grace. He'll lead us through it. If he can do all the things I just described, I think he can take us through life. It just gets hard when we become self and inner focused. That's the issue. Let's keep going. Page 32 is love. God is love. His love is unconditional. It's not based on the loveliness or merit of the object. It's not influenced by anything. He loves with no conditions. God loves the world so much that He's more willing to save sinners than sinners are to be saved. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates His love toward us when what? Well, we're still sinners. Christ died for us. We're still sinners. The point is before conversion. Love expresses itself in action and God is our example. Charles Spurgeon, quote, Nothing binds me to my Lord like a strong belief in His changeless love, unquote. Unconditional. How did He express Himself in love? How did God express His love? What did He do? Yeah, He sent His Son. Truth. God is the only true God. Truth means that the facts conform to reality. Truth identifies things as they are. There's another way of saying it. Truth identifies things as they are. Psalm 117.2 The truth of the Lord endures forever. Deuteronomy 32.4 God is described as 
a God of truth. He's a God of truth. In your workbook, it says, God's truth is above all. He is truthful even if all men are found to be liars. Therefore, his words and his judgments always prevail. Truth, Scripture. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. All Scripture comes from God. God is truth, therefore it's true. It can be trusted. Page 33. Mercy. God's great mercy is the practical expression of His compassion to those who have opposed His will. Grace. Receiving something we don't deserve. Mercy. Not receiving what we do deserve. Compassion. Mercy. He is gracious. He's slow to anger. Great in mercy all through the Bible. God's great mercy is contrasted with man's sin. This is in your notes. His mercy is displayed in our salvation in Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. Thomas Watson said this about mercy. Very helpful. Very instructive. Those are the best prepared for the greatest mercies that see themselves unworthy of the least. Meaning those who are best prepared see themselves unworthy and receive mercy anyway. Yeah. So there you go. We went through those last ones pretty fast. Questions? I remember John MacArthur said something about that God is so is very hard to, to write about. Uh, Jesus, I guess, gets most of the Holy Ghost second and wisdom, yes. But God, he said, for every five books that you uh, written about God, four you can throw away. <laughs> yeah. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Since they've seen Jesus, they can write about it. A little bit easier than the Father and the Spirit. Okay, next time, we're going to talk about the person of Christ in chapter 4.